All right. Uh, last night we introduced uh, life in the kingdom of grace, and this morning we are going to look at one of the most famous stories in the Bible. There are two things that are associated with David, his defeat of the giant Goliath and his sin with Bathsheba. And what's interesting, if you were to look at the book of First and Second Samuel, you would notice that chapters 11 and 12 of Second Samuel are actually the turning point in the whole book. Because up until this point, the kingdom of God has been safe in David's hands. David unites a divided kingdom. David makes the worship of God central to the people of Israel. He defeats Israel's enemies. He defends and he protects his people. And then he administers justice according to God's law. But now we come to see why as great as a man as David was, the kingdom of God cannot be safe in human hands. David is never going to be the same after this event that we're about to look at. His family will never be the same. The kingdom will never be the same. The weight of these chapters are actually so heavy, I really struggled with how am I going to teach this? How am I going to preach this? A lot of people look at this and they'll want to trace, how did David get to this point? And then they may apply, well, what can we learn about this? Well, let's try to learn some principles of what we can do to avoid what David did. And those are okay things. But the more that I've thought about it and the more I've read chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, the more I'm convinced that what we are seeing is what life in God's kingdom is all about. How God reigns and rules by and with His grace. So for our next three talks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at David's sin and pardon this morning. Tonight we're going to look at David's repentance and then tomorrow we're going to look at David's hope and David's assurance. So... We're not going to read uh, a lot of it. I just want to give you some samplings of this event. So if you would, turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll start by reading 1 through 6, and then I'll tell you where we'll jump to from there. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now make note of that, I'm just so that you know, whenever someone's described as handsome or beautiful, it's very rare in the Bible. Okay, So obviously this woman is very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one of the servants says, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now jump down to verses 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. So what ended up happening is she becomes pregnant. And so David sends now for her husband off of the battle lines to come back home in the hopes that he's going to sleep with his wife and then no one's going to suspect that she's pregnant by David. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now jump down to verses 22 and we'll read the rest of the chapter. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Now notice what he's stressing here. Because first, David's instructions were, Put your eye at the front and then have the rest of the men withdraw so he would die alone. But Joab, being the schemer that he is, realized that everybody's going to know that you had him killed. So Joab improves David's plan, but sends more men in with Uriah, and so more men die because of it. But now notice what the messenger is stressing here. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter be evil to you. For the sword devours one here and another there. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned over her husband. And when the mourning period was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. All right. Now, I have to confess, uh, this is its a tough passage to preach. And... It's a tough passage, not because a hero of the faith falls, um, but because I don't understand the depths of my own sin well enough, and I don't grasp the character of God well enough to fully understand this simple fact. God's grace is always greater than our sin. And here's what I'm struggling with, and I'm going to make you struggle with it. Do you have a category in your theological grid that enables your mind to wrap around this question or this statement? The power of God's grace is so great and it is so transforming that Uriah is going to rejoice when he sees David in heaven. A man whose family is absolutely and utterly destroyed by David and his sin is going to love David for all eternity. Do you have a category for that? Do you have a category that enables you with fear and trembling to humbly admit you are capable of committing the most heinous sins? Can you wrap your mind around the transforming power of God's grace that actually crushes David with conviction, but then lifts him, picks him back up, so that he is able to go on with the confident assurance that God loves him in spite of how heinous his sin is. If you don't have categories for this, then you have no idea what life in God's kingdom is all about or what it's really like. See, David shows us what's in every human heart. There's no way around it. But don't miss who this is and when he does this. Okay, this is not a hormone-raging teenager at this point. Okay, this is a mature David. This is a believer. This is someone who for many years has gone through many trials and many temptations and confidently trusted in the Lord through it all. When as a teenager, this is a man who was the only one in Israel, the only one who had the confident faith in God to face a terrorizing giant while all of Israel cowered in fear. This is a man who lived in constant danger for over 10 years on the run from Saul. 
He was anointed king, and yet he lived for over 10 years as a fugitive. And this is a man who had one disappointment after another, after another, after another during those 10 years. And this is a man who could write Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Or Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer and upholder of my life. Psalm 63, Your steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is written on my heart. The man who wrote many of the Psalms, the man who is called a man after God's own heart, the king who just four chapters earlier in chapter 7 was promised an eternal dynasty, is the man who covets a close friend's wife, commits adultery with her, When she becomes pregnant, he murders her husband, and then he lies to try to cover it all up. That's half the Ten Commandments right there. How could a man who is so devoted to God and so devoted to the good of God's people, how could he do this? I believe it's teaching us two things. We're seeing the power of sin and the deceitfulness of sin within all of us. All of us have within us the capabilities of committing the most heinous sins. If you don't have a category that enables you to say, I could do what David did, then you don't understand sin. The moment you think, I would never do what David did, I'm going to be honest, is the moment you're on the path to doing what David did. Now, I'm just going to be honest. Y'all are college students, okay? You have not lived with yourself long enough yet to know the depths of sin in your heart. And so we need to understand its power now. And it will spare you a lot of heartache later. But here's the question. Do you think you're better than David? (laughs) If you think, I can never do that. You think you're better than him? You think you're more godly than him? You think you're more mature in your understanding of God than he was when this happened? You see, within you and within me is the capability of committing the most heinous sins given the right opportunity and the right environment. You see, we're alerted to how this can happen. Look at verse 1. We're alerted to how this happens in the spring of the year, the time when kings go off to battle. David sent Joab and the rest of his men, but he remained in Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting, I'm wondering, as I was reading this, I'm like, all right, is is the writer, is he giving us a preview of what David's spiritual condition is at this point in his life with that statement? See, in chapter 10, Israel was at war with the Ammonites. But then when it became wintertime, they withdrew, but the Ammonites weren't subdued yet. So in the springtime, they're to resume the battle. Why was David king? Because they needed a king to defend and protect God's people against their enemies. So here is David in a time when he should have been out defending his people. He is at home about to destroy God's people. Now look at verse 2. When did it say he got up? When did he wake up? It was late in the afternoon. Right? It's not early in the morning. It's late in the afternoon. David is no longer on the alert. David is slothful of his duties. He is too relaxed, and then all of a sudden, wham! Sees a beautiful woman. Wants her. Sends for her. Takes her. Sleeps with her. 
she becomes pregnant. Now, this didn't happen on a whim. Sin never, sin like that never just happens on a whim. It happens gradually over time, inconspicuously over time. And to help us to see it more clearly, I want to make one observation which points us to what the, the author is emphasizing about David's sin. And it's seen in the verb to send. Eleven times in chapter 11, this verb to send is used. David sent for Joab. David sent messengers to inquire about Bathsheba. David sent messengers to get Bathsheba. Bathsheba sent messengers to David to tell him she's pregnant. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah. David sent Uriah back to Joab. Joab sends a messenger to David to explain what happened with Uriah. And Eugene Peterson in his commentary on this said, in this context, the verb to send is not a morally neutral word at all. It signals the impersonal exercise of power. By following the use of this verb, we can trace David's descent from love and obedience into calculation and cruelty. Verb by verb, we watch David remove himself from compassionate listening and personal intimacy with others to a position outside and above others, giving orders and exercising power. See, the irony of chapter 11 is that it appears as if David is in total control. He's sending people, he's telling people what to do, and everybody's obeying. Whatever he wants gets done. So, you looks like he's in control of the situation. And he is, in fact, in control of other people. But the irony is, he's not in control of himself. Now, let's look exactly what David does, because the whole focal point of chapter 11 is not on how people feel or on what people think. <laughs> There's no commentary in this chapter on what people feel or what they're thinking about what's going on. The whole emphasis is on what David did. By removing the thoughts and the feelings of the characters, the reader gets a feel for how cold, how quick, and how calculating David's actions really are. David sees, he inquires, he sends for, he takes, he lays. She becomes pregnant. Look at verse 3. I hope you saw it when we read it. The messenger is trying to stop David. Notice what he says. Is this not Bathsheba? So he's putting a name to her. The daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David, she's not an object. She's a person. She's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife. She's off limits. You're going to destroy them if you do this. But it gets worse. You see, Eliam and Uriah, they are two of the 37 men who make up or who are called David's mighty men. These are the men, while David was on the run from Saul, hiding in the cave of Abdullam, these are the men who come to him, and they become his personal bodyguard. These are his fiercest, best warriors. So not only does David betray one of his closest friends by taking his wife and committing adultery with her, but now that she becomes pregnant, he has to try to hide and cover it up. 
which he does in verses 6 through 25. So David sends for Uriah. He tries to get him to go home in the hopes that he's going to sleep with his wife. And then when she's becoming pregnant, nobody's going to know it was me. But there's just one small problem. Uriah is too faithful and too loyal to his king. He refuses to go home while his men are sleeping out on the battlefield. So he sleeps at the doorstep of the king's palace. And then David realizes, okay, that didn't work, so we got to come up with another plan. So then David gets him drunk, thinking, all right, his ambitions are going to be gone. He's going to lose control. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. Problem solved. But once again, Uriah doesn't go home. And I like how one commentator said, he said, Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. So when getting him drunk doesn't work, then David writes a letter to Joab and he basically says, Joab, put Uriah at the front of the lines where the fighting is fiercest and then have the rest of the troops withdraw so he dies alone. Now, what's interesting is that this letter was carried by who? Uriah. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. And he's so loyal he doesn't even open it to see what is in the letter. So what you have going on, which we're not going to have time to look at, you're seeing a contrast between Uriah and David here. Okay, But Joab, when he gets the letter, he realizes that the king's plan, this is way too obvious. Everybody's going to know that you had him killed. So Joab improves David's plan, sends more men with him, so more lives are destroyed because of David's sin. The circle of those who are being destroyed is growing larger and larger. Now, one more quick observation. Look at verse 25. Okay, this phrase, just so you know, it's, it's said in passing. But the way it's said, you've got to understand, when David says this, it's showing us something about him. His heart has become so hard and cold. David grieves the death of his enemy Saul. Doesn't care about the death of a close friend. Listen to what he says. The sword devours one here and it devours another one there. It's almost as if he's saying, Joab, such is the soldier's fate. We're all going to have to die sometime. A man who delights in God's will is a man who despises God's will. So do you see how powerful sin is? It has the power to take a man after God's own heart to make him into a man who only cares about what's in his heart. A man who delights in God's will into a man who despises God's will. A man who defends and protects others into a man who now destroys others. Now, we're going to look at this more a little bit tonight, but one of the main applications of this text, okay, quick, simple phrase made by John Owen, a Puritan writer in the 1600s. He says, be killing sin." or sin will be killing you. If we tolerate our sin, if we try to hide and cover it up and conceal our sin, it's only going to lead to more sinning. You see, sin's goal, it's never to just get you to do it once. It's always going to lead to more and more sin. And if it remains unchecked, if it remains uncontested, it's going to result in a hardened uncaring heart for others. Because of sin's power, we need to take it seriously. We need to do whatever we can to fight against it. 
We need to deal honestly with it. This is why last night I wanted to give you Psalm 32 so you would have the confidence to face it, to own it, to deal honestly with it. Because if we do not actively seek to root out the sin in our hearts, then it is going to destroy not only us, but those around us. But we need to see one other thing about sin. We've looked at his power, now we need to see its deceitfulness. Question, do you think David felt like a coveter when he saw Bathsheba bathing? Do you think he felt like an adulterer when he slept with her? Do you think he felt like a murderer when Uriah died? Again, Eugene Peterson, I got this from him, said this, the deceitfulness and subtlety of sin is such that it doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It feels godlike. It feels religious. It feels fulfilling and satisfying. David did not feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. He did not feel like a murderer when he sent the letter to Joab to have Uriah killed. He felt like a king giving orders. You see, the deceitfulness of sin is such that it can make us blind to our sin. And then if we try to justify it, it deceives us into thinking it's not that big of a deal anyway. And this is especially true of people in positions of power and service or people who are really busy doing things. You know, they have a lot on their plate. They're responsible for a lot of people. They serve people. But what ends up happening is then by being in these positions, we have a sense of entitlement. Nobody knows how hard I'm working. Nobody knows how much I'm doing. Nobody knows how much I sacrifice for others. I deserve this. So all it takes is the right environment and the right opportunity. I deserve a little satisfaction. I deserve a little enjoyment. I deserve a little break. And then the next thing you know, you go to that website. Next thing you know, you cheat on that test. The next thing you know, when your boyfriend says, hey, it's late, why don't you just stay over? You do. And then the next morning you find yourself doing the walk of shame. And then when that happens, you find yourself in a web that you're caught in. You see no way out. So then you suppress it. You hide it. You downplay it or you try to justify it. See, what's interesting, David has absolutely no clue the destruction he's causing at this moment. In verses 26 through 27, when he marries Bathsheba, he thinks it's all past him. He thinks he successfully covered it up, and now we can just go on and act like nothing ever happened. But in verse 3, what do we see? The servants is alerted to what David is doing. Verse 5, Bathsheba's servants know what happened. And in verse 24, the way the messenger reports back to David about what happened to Uriah tells us that he knows that David had him killed. So sin is deceiving so much that he has no idea he is about to destroy his kingship and the kingdom. No idea. As David's circle of sin and destruction grows larger and larger, so do the amount of people who know about it. At the end of verse 27, however, 
God finds out about it. See, this is what's interesting. What I told you all is that nobody's thoughts or feelings are expressed until verse 27. For the first time in this chapter, we find out what somebody else thinks and what somebody else feels. And I don't want you to miss how it reads in the Hebrew. In verse 25, David says to Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And while verse 27 says this thing that David did was evil in God's eyes. So David may casually brush off his sin, no big deal. I've covered it successfully. Nobody knows about it. Let's just move on. But God doesn't casually brush it off because God sees it. And one commentator said, for nine months, God may have been silent, but he's not sightless. As much as David in chapter 11 thought he was in total control, sending people to do whatever he wants, now we see the one who is truly in control. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. In chapter 11, David's playing God. He's abusing his power and destroying people. In chapter 12, he's about to face that God that he's trying to be. And the more I've read this, something sticks out to me. God, in chapter 12, is going to use his power to save. David is so deceived by his sin... He is so blind to how it is destroying his life and the lives of those around him that God sends Nathan to David. Okay, now bear with me here. God's first step towards David is not condemnation. It's grace. And we see it with Nathan. As God's prophet... Nathan is not just God's prophet, he's Nathan's friend. In fact, later on, when David has another child, he's going to name one of his sons Nathan after him. Because David is so deceived by sin, God steps in and sends Nathan on a search and rescue mission to recover David, who has now become lost. Nathan's actions display God's grace. Now, what you've got to understand, when we come to chapter 12, we didn't read it, but you can, we're going to follow it right now. Verses 1 through 7. In those days, the king and his court were not separated. They did both. Okay? The king administered his justice in the court. So Nathan is entering David's court with a case. And so he tells the story. There are two men in a certain city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had hundreds of sheep. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. This lamb was so precious to him that he treated it like a beloved family pet. It ate with the family. It drank out of his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And then one day a visitor came to the rich man. And if you know anything about this time, hospitality was the big deal today. They didn't have hotels like we have today. So people took in visitors into their own homes. So this man has a visitor. And instead of taking one of his own sheep, he took the poor man's beloved lamb and served it to the traveler. Now, we don't know if he stole it or if he took it by force with the man there. But before Nathan could ask, what should be done to this man, David's anger was greatly kindled. Now, remember, what was David as a boy? A shepherd. And Nathan's telling him a sheep story, right? 
The king who grew up as a shepherd was deeply moved by this case and he bursts out with judgment. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan says, David, you are that man. God uses Nathan to awaken David. He uses Nathan to remove sin's scales from his eyes so David could look full into the face of his sin and own it. There's definitely a trial here. The king is being judged, but you cannot miss what Nathan is doing and why I said he's displaying God's grace first. Notice, he does not start with, you are the man! He doesn't burst into the king's court and go, you adulterer! You murderer! You liar! He doesn't do that. That comes later. Why? Why doesn't he lead with condemnation? Now remember, God sent Nathan. God is pursuing David with his grace. He will not allow David to go comfortable in his sin. And because David is so deceived by it and he can't see the destruction it's causing him and those around him, God initiates to rescue David. God's grace is leading, in other words, not starting with condemnation, but it's leading to conviction in order to convert David. And once David stares full into the face of his sin and he sees it, in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, he cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. Now notice, David's sin is not the last word. Once David sees his sin, now God wants him to look full into his face and see his pardon. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. God lifted and removed David's sin so completely he doesn't see it. And again, last night, how can this be? How can God pardon David and not make him pay for his sin? Well, Eugene Peterson in his book, Leap Over the Wall, which is commentary on the life of David, made a very significant comment about this particular trial, and he compares it to another trial. David's sin, enormous as it was, Peterson says, was wildly outdone by God's grace. David's sin cannot and must not be minimized, but it is minuscule compared to God's salvation from it. There is a remarkable verbal resonance to this story of David standing before Nathan and that of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. They're both passion stories. David's passion for Bathsheba and Jesus' passion for us. Nathan says, you are the man... Pilate says, behold the man. So there are two courtrooms. There are two trials. David is guilty. Jesus is innocent. In 2 Samuel 12, the guilty one is pardoned. In John 19, the innocent one is condemned. There was no Nathan sent to Jesus in Pilate's courtroom. There was no verdict, you shall not die. Instead, crucify him. Crucify him. 
In 2 Samuel 12, David saw the face of God's forgiveness. In John 20, Jesus saw God's back. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus paid David's penalty so that David's sin could be pardoned. So brothers and sisters, friends, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. In Jesus, there is always pardon for you. This is why you need to stop hiding. This is why you need to stop covering up your sin. This is why you need to stop trying to justify it. Look full into the face of what you've done. Look full into the face of what you're doing. But then look full into the face of the one who saw God's back. So you could always have God's look of love. And tonight, I'm going to be honest, tonight is the most important talk I'm going to give this weekend. Because what we're going to see tonight is what do you do when you fall? How do you get back up? How do you make progress in the Christian life? And the only way to make progress is to repent. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what do we see from David? What do we, what do we learn from how heinous his sin is? Does it not shed light on how great your grace really is? That your grace is always greater than our sin. And in David, to help us see how great your grace is, we see the depths to which your grace reaches. Someone who was a coveter, who committed adultery with a close friend's wife, and then had him murdered to try to cover it up. This is a man. This is the power of sin in all of us. But your grace is always greater than our sin. So help us to see where you prove. John 19, John 20. Jesus was forsaken so we would not be continue to drive that point home into our hearts and cause us to rest in it, to believe in it, so that we can more confidently face the fullness of what we've done. And then we can more confidently look full into the face of the one who loves us beyond belief. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.